Amen. Can you see it? Can you see this great grace of God that he has bestowed upon us even this morning, even as we sit to hear and receive a word from God? Can you see how he enabled you to to live and to breathe for in him we live and move and have our being? It's because of him that we have anything at all. It's because of him that we have hope. Because of him that we we can't have peace. Can you see his grace? If you haven't seen his grace lately, just look in the mirror. Just look in the mirror and see that God has allowed you one more day, one more breath, one more time to proclaim, proclaim his praise. New mercies, new grace. Man, I thank God that his mercies and grace is renewing day by day, day by day by day, because I use up my grace and my mercy. I used a man yesterday, so I'm glad I got some new mercy and grace today to allow us to enter in right now. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark, the 11th chapter. And as you do, let me just say welcome to our guests and visitors of Forest Baptist Church, as we proclaim and shout the praises of God's glory here on this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate our King, as we come to celebrate our God, God the Father, who from from eternity past has set forth a plan to, to bring a people unto himself. This God has decreed through his divine providence that you would even be here this morning. We, we give glory to God, the Son, who Jesus Christ, who is King Jesus, who died upon Calvary's cross, that we may be reconciled back to the Father. And God, the Holy Spirit, who, who enables us, who, who gives us life. When we were yet dead in our trespasses and sin, the Holy Spirit fell upon us and allowed us to see this grace. And he even now empowers us to be able to worship, to even want God. We don't want God on our own, but it is the Holy Spirit empowering us to even desire him. Mark, the 11th chapter. Beginning with verse 1, we will be reading... Mark's account through the Apostle Peter of the triumphal entry this morning. Mark the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 1. O Forest Baptist Church, hear the word of Christ. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the, the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. 
and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut cut from the fields. And those who went before and, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let us pray. O Holy Father, we come before your mighty, majestic throne of grace now. In the name of Jesus, the Son, empowered by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we come now to declare your praise. We come now to exalt and to worship you. We come now to have our minds preoccupied with the things of God. And Father, as we come, may your Spirit fall freshly upon us and enable us to worship. May by your spirit you give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Even now, dear God, the one who does not desire the things of God, I pray that you will break open his heart. You would transform that, that, that heart of stone into, uh, into flesh that you may move through them even now, dear God. Father, prepare us for a transformation by the word of Christ as we listen to what you have for your people this morning, dear God. Father, as we celebrate this triumphal entry, we are not celebrating just an ordinary man. We are celebrating King Jesus. And I pray that each and every day of our lives, we will celebrate you like it's a triumphal entry. Because on the day that you saved a wretch like us, it was a triumphal entry as you delivered us from sin. Father, even now, hide me behind thy cross. Lord, I beg, I beg, I beg of you that you will glorify your name through me now. For your glory and name's sake, we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, these days, there is so much outrage. There are so many situations and circumstances that we are outraged about. Wondering how could something like this happen in this world? How could these atrocities take place? So much outrage, and rightly so in many cases, there are cries for justice. There are cries for equity. whether it is the Occupy movement who are protesting the fact that 99% of the people hardly own anything and 1% does. There's outrage over the fact that in Africa right now there are warlords using children as soldiers to commit heinous crimes against man. There's outrage, and there should be. There's outrage in our news lately over the Trayvon Martin case 
And we ask ourselves, how could such a thing happen in the United States of America? In 2012, there's outrage. People want justice. And I believe that, rightly so, we do demand justice. Thinking about these particular situations, the Lord brought me across the 98th division of Psalm, where the psalmist starts off by saying, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And as the psalmist goes on, he declares what, just what God has done. He has revealed salvation. He is redeeming his people. He is doing all these things to save us. Continues to go forth, and, and, it, and the psalmist bursts out into praise of God. Almighty God, you're wonderful. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Then he goes on from people and he begins to speak about creation as if it were human. Let the seas roar. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. But why? Why is the psalmist saying that we should praise God? Why is the psalmist saying that, that the, the, the seas roar and all of creation is giving accolades and adulation to, to God, this, this king. Why? I love how this verse ends. This passage of scripture ends. It says, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist is looking for that day when the king, the righteous king of God, will arrive on the scene to make things right. He's tired of inequity. He, he's tired of pestilence and disease. He's tired of invasion after invasion. He's tired of oppression. He's tired of sin roaming rampant in the land because that's why we don't even know it. You're not outraged over the situation. You're outraged over sin. And he's looking forward to that day when the king will come and he will rule in righteousness and equity. And it will be fair and it will be just. It's not how, like, we go to, to our job. We, we've been on the job six months, and we tell our coworker, our boss don't know nothing what they're doing. Now, if, if I was here, I would do this like this and do this like this, and they, they should just promote me. No, no, it's not like that. This is the king who knows what he's doing. And it's with that train of thought that we look to today's passage of Scripture in this title called the king has arrived, but I did make some modifications on that title, even just yesterday. It's, 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 
the king has arrived, dot, 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 the king is coming. Because this text before us this morning, it, 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 it paints a majestic, kingly portrayal of Jesus. And it, as with many other places in scripture, there's, there's almost like a twofold understanding that we can see going on here. We're talking about the king arriving on the scene here, but when you look in the text and, and, and you've read the whole book, you can kind of see that, okay, the king, he's coming here, but doesn't the end of the book say he's coming then? As we explore this, we'll, we'll look into that so just to paint a picture of this triumphal entry, this, this account is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it is this passion week, as Christians call it, a week of suffering where Jesus will bear the sins of the world and God will pour out his wrath upon the Son. He will suffer and die in a place. This, this passion week. These weeks, these events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And on the scene right here, Jesus has just performed one of his most amazing miracles that turned out to be the very miracle that the Pharisees hated. The fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they are angry because now the crowds are beginning to build. Because it, 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 it's something about just making a, a blind man see or a lame man walk. But when a cat's been dead for a couple of days now, and Jesus walks in and says, arise, and life comes, people take note. So the Pharisees have taken note, and Jesus here in, in verse 1, they begin their journey from the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and, and they are entering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover being that, that wonderful deliverance from Egypt where God told the people in Egypt to, to, to slay the lamb and put its blood over their doorposts. This was the final, the, the final judgment upon Egypt that God was bringing and as the people placed the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, it signified that they were covenant, in covenant with God. They believed God. They were faithful to God. And God, the deaf angel, passed over that home. But every home that did not have blood splattered on the doorframe, the firstborn son would die. And God commanded the children of Israel to celebrate this, that they will never forget just what God has done for them. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover meal. And he comes in to this huge parade. Again, people, people are following him because Jesus does these crazy things that people have never seen before. So as he comes in, put, put yourself there. You're first century, these, these, these dusty roads, uh, Scholars estimate over two million people are here in Jerusalem. Now, all of them, 
certainly wasn't here at this very moment, but these massive crowds parading down the street as Jesus comes in. I mean, it's, I mean this is a big parade. To think about it, say, say Louisville had one last night. I mean, this is like that parade going down Broadway where everyone is dressed in their red, shaking their shirts in celebration. A huge parade, a huge event that's taking place here. And then the scriptures begin to show us this kingly portrait of Jesus. This is a kingly portion of text. God wants us to see that Jesus is the king. He wants us to see that. And in verse 1, Jesus begins to prepare to come in, and the whole point of this recorded record is that, uh, uh, of what Jesus is doing, is that this is the public announcement that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful King of Israel. See, I Understand, even in the beginning, as we go forth, understand Jesus is not just the Savior, but he is a king with a kingdom. He, he is Savior and Lord. He has authority. This Jesus who we, who we celebrate and, and, and sing to, he is somebody. He is a king. And until now... Jesus has been kind of low, hush-hush about what he's doing. He would do a, 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 a miraculous work and then tell the person, don't say nothing. He would cast out demons and say, hush, be quiet. It's, it's, it's not my time yet. He's doing all of this and telling people to be quiet. Jesus, you just, I, I've been lying all my life. And you say, don't tell nobody, it's not my time yet. It's time now. It's time now. So this is the, the public announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's not like he, he just needs this to testify that he is Messiah. For all in Scripture, Jesus wasn't just healing just to be healing. Jesus was healing disease to say he has authority over disease. He was not just making the, the, the waters and the wind calm just because he could. He is saying, I have authority over the winds and the rain. He is not just, just, just walking on water just because it looks sweet. Watch this, watch this, Peter. No, he is doing something. He is saying, I have authority over all this stuff and nothing can hold me. I can do as I please. He has, been, he has already been declaring that he is the Messiah. However, Jesus, he just want to make it plain right here in this text. And he does so by riding in on a donkey. A donkey. Yes, a donkey. And, and you, you may wonder, how, how is that of any importance to Jesus being the Messiah? We may not think that it's a big deal. However, the, it's a very big deal. And this imagery will be very familiar with a first century Jew. Because in ancient times, when kings entered into a city, they would do so on a horse or a donkey. It's, it's not like now where 
presidents and kings have armor-plated limos to get them from place to place. And it's not like they had Air Force One just waiting in the wings to whisk you from shore to shore. It's not like that. Kings rode on animals. And kings would enter into cities on these animals. An example of this is in, you don't have to turn, in 1 Kings, we see that when David is stepping down, when he is about to pass over rulership of Israel to Solomon, he tells the prophets to, to, to go get my mule and put Solomon on it. And then take him down and anoint him as king of, over Israel. And when he got on, the people saw him on, the scripture say David's mule. They recognized that. This was the king's mule. Something kingly about that. But not only that, the scriptures flat out declare that this was in fulfillment of Jesus being king, being king because in Matthew's and John's account, they quote the prophet Zechariah. Turn with me to Zechariah in your Old Testament. Zechariah, the ninth chapter, and beginning with Verse 9. The people would recognize this imagery because the prophet Zechariah had prophesied this very event would take place. And he does so here in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus rides in on this donkey to fulfill this prophecy that Zion, no, your, your king is coming. Your king is arriving. And I like, I like how the apostle John summarizes it. He says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Fear not. But why would he say fear not? Fear not is correct here because the fact that Jesus is riding on a donkey as a king, it, it symbolizes that he comes in peace. He comes as the humble servant. He comes not to, to, to take over Rome, but he comes to bring peace to the people. How would he bring peace? Now, he would not bring peace by overthrowing Rome. He, he came to bring peace by overthrowing sin. To set the captives free. To liberate the people from their sins. That is his purpose. To bring peace between God and man. So that is the imagery of this donkey. Additional evidence that Jesus is king in this text is when the disciples take their cloaks and spread it across the donkey. And when the people lay their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to walk across. And, they, and as we've seen, the, the palm branches the palm branches represent, it, it was like the Jewish, it was, it was a national thing, almost like their flag, and it symbolized victory. You know, like in, in, in the Olympics, when a, a sprinter wins, and they get ready to take their victory lap, they drape themselves in whatever country's flag to kind of symbolize, my country has the victory, the palm, the, the palm branches. 
In, in, in 2 Kings, we see an example of this also, the same type of thing when, when Jehu is anointed as king of Israel. 2 Kings, just, let's look at that real quick. 2 Kings, the ninth chapter. But beginning with verse 11. And it says, when Jehu came out, Elisha had just seen, sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint Jehu king. And they come out of the room. When Jehu came out of the servants, out to the servants of his masters, they said to him, it's all well. Why that, did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, this is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then watch this. Then in haste, every man, every man of them took his garments and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So as Jesus is coming in, this, this imagery is symbolic of, yes, Jesus is the king. At least externally, they were saying he was the king recognizing him as the one who would redeem them. How else can we see that Jesus is the king if he hasn't made the plain enough already? We see it in the crowd's response. The people responding as, they, as, they, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he is greeted with an ovation from the crowd. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Highest, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna, he's shouting. What is this Hosanna? What are they, what are they talking about? Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means, oh, save. Save us now. And it referenced Psalm 118, this messianic psalm of hope. Oh, save us now. Save us from this oppression. Save us from this, this tyranny. Save us from all that is taking place. Save us now. The people who knew this is the Messiah. This is the king. But what else? How else is Jesus saying that I, I, I'm the king? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because the text says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. How could Jesus just walking in the temple even mean anything? But the scriptures declare by the prophet Malachi that, that the king, that God would suddenly come and visit the temple to see what was going on and taking place. This is, this is a kingly text. That's the whole point of just, just walking through and kind of explaining that. This is putting Jesus as, yes, he is the true Messiah. Yes, he is the Redeemer. Yes, he is the one that Israel has been waiting for. Yes, he is the one in Genesis 3.15 that will come and deliver the people. This is him. But please, please don't miss what's unfolding in the text before us this morning. Jesus is just not the king for first century Jews. 
Jesus is the literal king of a literal kingdom that has literal people. Jesus is our king now. Physically ruling and reigning now. We get caught up in the text sometimes and say, oh, look what happened there and look what happened there. No, what this is saying is that the king has arrived and he's currently ruling now. This is King Jesus. This king who is king over the entire universe, over all things thereof. And yet in his splendor and in his majesty, in his power, in his authority, the king of glory, he was not coming to subdue this Roman oppression. He was coming to save and to serve. The events that take place during this week, are they're leading up to this, this grand crescendo of creation where, where the Son of God will be on, on Calvary's cross. That we may know him, that we may know God and, and fellowship with God. It's, it, it's, even studying this, it's hard, it's hard to understand a king because we live in a democracy. We live in a society where we can pretty much be our own king and do what we want and have our own concerns and our, and our own desires. But when you live in a monarchy, your desire is the king's desire. The king's wants becomes your wants. The king has full authority to rule in the reign. We don't get that. My God, please help us to understand this. That we are servants of a king. So as we gather together today to worship our God and and honor our king on this Palm Sunday, the question before us is not, is Jesus the king? I just went through that to kind of make it plain, to to set us up for, for for this right here. The question is not, is Jesus king? The question is, what will you do with the king? That's the question. It, it, the, facts, the facts are there. The facts are in. Jesus is king. Now what are you going to do with him? How will you respond to these truth claims? Is it, is it enough to, to, to read that he's the king? Is, is it enough to, to even believe that he is the king? The question is, is there a tangible difference in your life because you know he's the king? Have you been, uh, have you submitted yourself, surrendered to his will, and acknowledgement that, yes, God, he is my king? This is where the Jews ran into trouble. And this is where we went into trouble. Listen, we, we, we must not be tempted to receive Jesus on our own terms. That's, that's what the people were doing. They wanted to receive Jesus on their own terms. And because when we do, we, we create a king in our hearts that's not Jesus. That, that, that's a false god that we're worshiping now. See, the, the Jews were shouting Hosanna. They were laying down their coats. They were doing all of this because they thought 
Jesus was going to do what they wanted to do. They figured that Jesus was coming to overthrow Rome and that he would set up uh, this new kingdom for Israel, that the people will be restored. They won't have to be looked down upon anymore. They won't have to work as hard anymore. They won't have to be oppressed anymore. Jesus, come and fix my situation. I, I need a king now. And as long as you're willing to do what I want you to do, I will celebrate you. I mean, even, even the disciples thought this. Back in Mark 10, you have James and John. They're, they're, they're fighting. They're fighting. Lord, we want you to do something for us. Not, not can you please? Can you think about it? Lord, we want you to do this. When you enter into your kingdom, can we sit on the right and left side of you? Their aspirations was political. The Jews' aspirations were political, ready to hail Jesus as king as long as he satisfied them. But we see what happened. When Jesus came to actually satisfy their greatest need, they, they missed it. And I can't say that it's the very same crowd but the nation of Israel as a whole, where, where they, they once was saying, Hosanna, oh, save us. Now it's crucify him. Crucify him. And I like what John MacArthur says about this. He says, if, if Jesus doesn't do what the sinner wants him to do, the sinner turns on him. How do you respond when Jesus don't do what you think he should do? How do we respond when Jesus don't show up when we want him to show up? How do we respond when Jesus, he just doesn't do what we asked him to do? Do we, do we turn into a, 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 a woe is me? Is it, Lord, I see I, I, I tried this Christianity thing and it's just not working for me. Maybe I need to try something else. Now, how do we respond when, when Jesus hasn't shown up in your marriage yet? How, how, how do we respond when Jesus hasn't showed up in your child's life yet? Or when he hasn't showed up on the job yet? When he hasn't showed up in, in the community yet? How do we respond? Have we set up a false king? Have we received a, a, a false notion of who this Jesus is? The problem with the Jews is that they wanted Jesus to do something in their lives before they gave their lives to Jesus to do something with. Jesus is saying, I, I can do something with your life when you give it to me. I, I can rule over your life once you su surrender your life to me. But as long as you're over here doing your thing, holding on to your life, I can't do nothing with that. And we, as the people of God or, or people here today who don't even know God, we have to get to the point that we're expecting Jesus to do something with our lives when we don't even trust him with our lives. Give him your life. Willingly submit to the king. And it's not that, well, okay, I just... Give my life to Christ and he'll fix everything. No, it's not that. But he satisfied that 
that, that greatest need that we have. We need a Savior. I, I beg you today. I beg you in your heart of hearts to lay your cloaks down. Lay your cloaks down. That, that, that's a symbol of humility and submission before, before God. Lay your cloaks down. Take off your, your guards. Take off these, these, these stipulations that you have in order. Well, Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. And Lord, if you do this, i This is the king. We don't give stipulations to the king. We receive his orders and willingly submit to them. There's another temptation that we need to avoid also. We must not be tempted to reject Jesus because of our own kingdom wants. Turn with me to John, the 11th chapter. Praise God for, you know, praise God for Sunday school. Praise God for all these Sunday school teachers who diligently study their lessons and teach. Walking down the hall, I heard one of the kids' class teaching this very thing, the donkey coming. Wait, wait, we're not even finished with the donkey yet. I got some more. But in my class today, my teacher was talking about this. In, in John, the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 45. Again, Jesus, he, 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 he raises Lazarus, Lazarus. And they're upset. They're upset. Many, uh, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, talking about Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now watch this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These religious folks were, were more concerned about what they would have to give up than what they get. They were more concerned about the status and the, the notoriety that they would have to give up if, if they really allowed Jesus to come in fully. More than just what Jesus would have been able to do in their lives had they let him come. And here they're, they're worried about Rome coming in and, 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 and taking over. Because pretty much when Rome came and conquered a nation, they wouldn't just tear up their whole way of life. They would usually, whatever religions were there at the time, they would let, they would let them have those religions. But there was a rule that Rome, there, there could not be any new religions. That's why later on in, in early church history, you see the church being persecuted so much because Christianity was beginning to burn and people had passion for Christ. And Rome said, what is this, this Christ stuff? And they begin to oppress Christians. So they're worried that Rome will come in and shut them down if, 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 if Christ is proclaimed. But the scriptures also says, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? 
What's the big deal if they were able to keep power and yet lose their soul? What would it mean if they kept their notoriety but lost their soul? Let's make this a little bit more personal. Why are we rejecting Jesus the King? Well, you know, I just ain't had all my fun yet. You know, I ain't really ready to come to Jesus because, you know, I still got to do this and I still got to go there. I still got to experience this. Oh, really? That's almost like the fool where God says, I've called for your soul tonight. Or what about, you know, when I get older, I'll receive Jesus. When I, when I get older and, and I've, I've, I've went through high school and had my fun and played my sports, and then, then I'll, I'll receive Jesus. How do you know the offer will still be open then? Well, you know, I just don't like being told what to do by nobody. I just want to be in control of my life. And, and, and Jesus got all these rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, I just want to be my own person. What profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Are, are we rejecting Jesus for these temporal things of this world? Where are you today? Where are you at today in this situation? You know, a uh, a professor, a wise professor once told me that when we read a text like this, it's, it's, it's easy to see us as the person in the crowd that, that would have been shouting Jesus, I'm for real. That it, it's easy to see yourself as that person in the text who would have responded right. How many times have I heard, man, if I was Adam, if I was Eve, you know what, you would have blew it too. As a matter of fact, Adam just represents you right now. But when we look at the text, we stop seeing yourself as the hero. See, see, we're the zero in the story. We're the ones that are broken down, making bad choices and stupid decisions and, 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 and are petty and, and foul and, and evil and wicked. That's us in the text. When we come to a passage of scripture like this, we must see ourselves for who we are. We are the ones who shout Hosanna on Monday, crucify him on Friday. We are the ones who say, Lord, however you want to move in my life, move. And, but, and we are the ones that reject him when he's trying to move. We are the ones who, who, who spit upon him. We are the ones who gave him lashes. We are the ones that nailed his hands to that old rugged cross. We are the ones who, who caused his death. Wasn't the Roman soldiers? That was my sin that put him up there. That was your sin that put him up on that cross. We got to personalize the scripture. It's talking about us. We are the we are the Pharisees, not wanting Jesus to muscle in on our territory, willing to commit murder just to stop. Man, this is us because the scriptures tell us that we have wicked, sinful hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
It is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's why you don't just follow your heart. Your heart will lead you. Your heart will tell you what to do. Your heart will tell you what's right. Your heart's lying to you. Your your heart's lying to you right now. If you in that pew saying, well, this message ain't really for me. (laughs) That's just for my neighbor down there. Because I see how they act. And I saw what they said. If, if that's you right now, if, you know, I really don't need Jesus, I, I just kind of live my life out. If that's you right now, your heart is lying to you. We have wicked, sinful hearts. That's why we need a Savior. The heart of man desires to be pleased. That's why when we're trying to do the right thing, you always have that tug. Like, man, I should really be reading my Bible, but I am so sleepy. Man, I, I, really, I really should go worship today. I just, you know, is it, the weather's bad. I really don't want to go. There, there's always that tug within you because your heart wants to destroy you. The heart of man desires his own kingdom. Now, can we, can we just be real for a minute? Who really likes to be told what to do? Who who has ever, in their heart, well, in their mind, their boss come gives you a hard word, and on the outside you say, okay, yes, sir, no, sir, okay, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and you walk away, the first thing you do, all up on your breath. We We don't like being told what to do. That's real. But that's that's because we have a sinful heart. And that sinful heart does not want Jesus. And that, and that sinful heart wants to play games all day. And that sinful heart wants to hang out all night. And that sinful heart wants to fuel itself. Man, well, Pastor, you painted a pretty bleak picture of humanity. Yes. Yes, I have. Why? Because the gospel is only good news if you know you had the bad news. And the bad news is we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are desperately wicked and broken. How could we ever embrace the King if we have such a sinful heart? Turn with me to John's account of the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, I'll read the whole thing, it's not that long, beginning with verse 12, John 12, 12, and it says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. Now, watch this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Why were the disciples of Jesus able to embrace and yearn for the king? 
What enabled them to live lives sold out in humble submission to the king? In order for them to even begin to understand and follow Christ, a resurrection needed to take place. See, the scriptures tells us that after Jesus suffered and died upon Calvary's cross, having died in our place, bearing God's wrath for our sin, enduring God's just wrath, he was buried. But it doesn't end there that he rose on the third day and that he showed himself to, to the people and that he ascended on a cloud. What does that tell us today? Scriptures tell us that when a person repents of their sin, that means turn. When you're turning from sin and you, and you turn to, to Christ, the scripture says now his life becomes my life. And my life is hidden in him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It, it's not us who live. Why? Because we have died in order for us to embrace Jesus, a resurrection needs to take place in our hearts. That resurrection is Jesus Christ. Because when he died and our lives are hidden in him, the Father sees us just as he sees the Son. So when their dead hearts were, were wakened, when the Spirit blew upon them and they, and they followed Christ, they had been resurrected able to follow Jesus. When the Spirit of God is poured out on those who once were dead in trespasses and sin, and a person is born again, they're, they're resurrected to live with the king and his kingdom. How many of you know today that after a person has been resurrected, only then can a resurrection occur in our homes? When a person has been resurrected, only then can resurrection occur in your marriages. See, once a person has been resurrected, then their, their parent-child relationships can be resurrected. And, and, and when a, a child is resurrected, that's the, that's the only way our schools will be resurrected. You can have whatever standards, whatever laws, whatever dress codes you want in our schools. But until our kids get Jesus, those schools won't change. Until the community becomes a collection of resurrected individuals. Only then would our communities be resurrected. Praise God. Isn't that the gospel hope? Isn't that the hope? Sinners surrendering to the king. Giving them their life for his. Jesus is the only king who saves. Surrender your life today to the king who rules with righteousness and equity. Deep down, we, des we desire a king. The problem is we put the wrong one there. We desire to be righteously ruled. We desire equity. We desire justice. We, de we desire to know that we're safe. As God talks about Israel, it's like, like a, how a mother holds a child. How a, how a bird covers its child. When you're in the kingdom, that's what God is doing for you. He is covering you. 
is keeping you. He gives you equity. As long as we live in a fallen world, there will always be injustice. But when we're in the hands of Jesus, we know that we live for that day when the king comes and he will rule with righteousness and equity. From the text this morning, we we clearly see that the king has arrived. Not only for the Jews, but for us today, forevermore. Will, Will you embrace the king? Will you yearn for the king? The king who willingly laid down his life that we may take up his, no longer living for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. Will we embrace the true king of glory? Will we crucify our false expectations? Embrace the king and give up your life today. I beg you, give up your life today. What profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And though the king has arrived, this event is actual, this this is not his coronation. It's not his earthly coronation. Because when he ascended, he received authority over the kingdom. But there's an earthly coronation that's going to take place. And you know, I was was talking about the donkey before, how when the king came in on a donkey, that meant he came in peace and humility as a servant. See, but then there's another way a king comes in. And it, in ancient times, when the king came in on a war horse, he did not come in peace. He did not come to be a servant. He came to throw down and take over. And the scriptures tells us in Revelation 19 that when King Jesus comes back, He's not coming in on a donkey this time. The scripture says he's coming back on a on a war horse. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with, uh, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. You know, you know what a wine press is? When they, they put the grapes in there and they tread on them. And, 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 and it just splatters and, and, and juices splatters. He's going to be treading on those who make war against him. Their blood splattering because he's coming on a war horse this time. And he says that on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts. 
and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with, the, and with it the false prophet who is in uh, presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The king has arrived. Dot, dot, dot. The king is coming. Trust the king now. As he sits on the donkey, or be crushed by him when he comes back on his war horse. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are his, and this is his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we come now. We come to you in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Acknowledging you as King and Lord of all. And Lord, as you have demonstrated this day in the text that you are King, Lord, please open our eyes that we may see you as King and love you as King. May our hearts yearn for the return of the King. May we have no reason to fear the King when he comes back. But may we be a people who joins that heavenly army and rides on white, on white horses along with him. Lord God, today, save some for yourself. Lord, I believe you can do it for your kingdom. Save some even today, oh God. Father, for the one who is weakly walking along on this Christian race, may you strengthen them. May the one who is blind and cannot see, may you open their eyes. And may we sit in awe of this king. May we yearn for the day where that second triumphal entry will take place. Lord Jesus, move in our thoughts and our hearts. Pray that you will glorify your name through us this day. Lord Jesus, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.